Hello, I'm Mark Foden, and welcome once more to The Clock and the Cat, a podcast of conversations about complexity in organisations. The Clock and the Cat explores the emerging science of complexity, ultimately to help you be more effective, whatever you're involved with. This is episode eight, and today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Eric Wenzel. If this is your first experience of the podcast, it might help if you jump back to episode one for a seven-minute introduction by me. We'll wait for you. If you went away, welcome back. Here I am with Eric. Not exactly with him as he's in Hamburg and I'm not far from London, but with luck you won't notice. Eric is a management consultant working in a big international consultancy. He's involved in assessing, training and coaching senior executives, and he specialises in supporting change in complex environments. And he's been doing this for 20 years or so now. He's a doctor of management and he has a first degree in psychology. At the moment, he's writing a book about paradox in management. Eric and I first met in May last year, that's 2019, at the Complexity and Management Conference that's put on by the University of Hertfordshire. And these are the same folks who run the Doctor of Management course that Eric did. We've had some fascinating discussions, and Eric recently asked me for some feedback on the first chapter of his book, which is fascinating. His appearance in this episode is, is my fee for the work. So, Eric, welcome. How's the book going? Hi, Mark, and thanks for having me on your uh, program here. It's it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Tell us about the book. The book's coming along well, but I think as as any author, I thought it would come along more quickly than it uh, does in the end, but I'm certainly enjoying it. But obviously, it's more more complex of an endeavor than I thought about uh, when I started it. So this is your first attempt at a book, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah, I've had a go too. It might still work in progress, but uh, but hey. So, Eric, obviously everybody here uh, is interested in complexity. How did you first get interested in complexity? How did you hear about it? As you said in the introduction, I have been working on change projects for a while now. And it occurred to me at some point, around 10 or so years ago, that what I was doing, basically prescribing plans for change and implementing them, when I worked on my plans and tried to implement them, something very different usually happened. So we set out, for example, um, some milestones for the next 18 or so months. And at some point, when I was honest with myself, I had to find that often we wouldn't even reach milestone one. So that that, that was not the most precarious insight. The more precarious insight then for me was that clients re-invited me to doing work with them. And I couldn't understand why that was, because I was obviously not delivering on the contract. So it must be something different that I was doing. And I couldn't get my head around what that was. And that was what led me into exploring literature of a different kind than I was consuming at the time, and ultimately finding me ending up with um, trying to understand complexity a little bit better and what it could mean to, uh, for me to understand what I'm, what I'm doing at my work, actually. So uh, can I ask you, your clients were inviting you back because they were getting value from you, but it wasn't the value you thought you were giving. Is that right? Or Yes. That was quite an insight for me, but that's what it seemed to be like. So what, what did you think they were getting from you? With that question, we are jumping right to the end of my doctoral thesis because once oh, right. I had a question in mind, I was thinking, how, how am I getting my head around that? And it took me the three years of the demand program to try and understand what it was that I was contributing when it was not delivering the plan. And I think 
one of the main bits that I was adding was facilitating conversations in which people had found the opportunity to explore what they were doing actually, as opposed to talking about highly abstract models or notions about what they should be doing. And it sounds like a simple thing, but once you're working as a consultant, it will be extremely difficult for you to say to people, look, this is what we contracted, but let's be honest, what we're doing is something very different. And then have a client saying, oh yeah, no, I see what you mean. And of course, let's leave the contract aside and we do what we think is, is necessary. So, so to facilitate that kind of conversation is difficult. Yeah. That's really interesting. Do you know, I've got a remarkably similar experience. I mean, I spent a lot of time, probably more than 20 years ago now, doing a lot of process re-engineering type stuff. And I used to draw diagrams and diagrams and diagrams, and people paid me money for it. And I was talking to one guy who was a sort of senior manager of an organization I was working in. And he said to me, he said, all these diagrams, you know, I'm not sure it's the diagrams that are adding that much value. And I sort of kind of paused and looked at him. Um, and he said, he said, actually, the, th the value you're bringing is that you're creating a forum in which my people can come together and have sensible conversations about the things that they're doing. And that was quite an insight for me. And it kind of changed the way that I looked at things and did things. And maybe, maybe we've come to complexity in the same way, Eric. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the, the D-Man program, and I've heard a lot about that over the last couple of years. And, you know, obviously I went to the conference last May where we met. Can you just say a bit about why you did the D-Man program and how you got into it and what it was like? Once I had that question in my mind, what is it that I'm doing here actually in my work? Uh, I, I couldn't resist from talking to people about it. And at the time, there was this one chap who was also quite interested in, to come in, in this topic of complexity, which I didn't know at the time, but we just had regular conversations. So I then said to him, look, this is what is exercising me at the moment. And he said, you need to read this one book. And he pointed me to a book by Douglas Griffin, who, as you note in the introduction, is one of the founding fathers of the ideas around complex responsive processes. And I bought that book. And I'm quite an avid reader. But to be honest with you, I couldn't make sense half of it. I did enough of it to say, I think this person is talking exactly to my experience. And that was such a different experience from reading a management book than I had from other management books. And it intrigued me so much so that I inquired about him, found out that he actually lives in Germany like I do, even though he's American and he teaches on the British University, or taught at the British University, he passed away a couple of years back. So he, he lived in Cologne, or lived in Cologne, and uh, then I, I asked him if he could if he could meet, and he said, oh yes, of course we can. So we met at a hotel, and um, that's how it got me started. And so he he was uh, he was a professor on the D -Man. the D man existed then, and he was a professor on it. Is that right? Yes, exactly, exactly. The demand came in existence when Ralph Stacey set up a first group of PhD students to explore matters around complexity at Hartford. And Ralph uh, and Doug was one of the people who were on that PhD program that later on was then reformed into a Doctor of Management, aka a professional doctorate program. But at that time, it was Doug participating in this PhD program and the book that I read was basically based on his PhD thesis. Uh, had, had the 
a complex responsive processes idea emerged by then? Uh, yes, yes, it had. And Ralph Stacey had undergone a major shift in his thinking by the time as well, which is important if we come to talk about that later. I spoke to Eric. We knew this topic of complex responsive processes would come up. Complex responsive processes is a thing. And we decided it would be useful to do a short explanation of what this is. And it ended up with me having a go at it, which was actually a huge pleasure. And I, I, I enjoyed doing it. So what I've done is yesterday I recorded, um, it's about four minutes long. And what I'll do is I'll just play it now so that you get an injection of what complex responsive processes is all about. This is about the complex responsive processes of relating. It's a theory, an evolving body of thought coming from a collaboration between some professors at the University of Hertfordshire, Ralph Stacey, Doug Griffin, Patricia Shaw, and latterly Chris Moles. It's important because it offers a compelling alternative to accepted ways of thinking about organizations as systems. It's a development of the natural sciences theory of complex adaptive systems. And the key thing is that it questions the lifting and shifting of complexity ideas directly to human interaction. And also, for example, the increasingly popular metaphor of organizations as living biological systems. The difference is that humans have volition. We can reason with each other, whereas flocking starlings, ants and anticyclones just don't. We respond to each other in complex and varying ways, we don't interact according to simple rules. Complex responsive processes specifically eschews the concept of a system and with it systems thinking. So, ooh, er, uh, blimey. It views systems thinking, including all the great stuff like Peter Senge's systems dynamics that I've personally relied on for years as an abstraction of what's actually going on. It presents what we think of as organisational systems as abstractions, as social phenomena repeated global patterns emerging from local human interaction. These patterns are paradoxically stable and unstable at the same time, and we'll ask Eric about that in a minute. To envisage this, imagine a river estuary and imagine a stationary, standing wave created by the interference of tide and current. The wave looks stable, but it's actually formed of billions of fast-moving, interacting water molecules. Now, the molecule of human interaction is the conversation, or more generically, the exchange of gestures. Gestures including talking, body language, sending emails, drawing pictures, or yodeling across a Swiss valley, for example. Crucially, it views conversations not as two-way exchanges of information, but as a mutual creation of meaning. There are books and books on this stuff, but in essence, each pairing of gesture and response creates a new experience for those involved that affects their subsequent gestures. It sees humans as fundamentally social and interdependent. It challenges the view that we are autonomous, rational beings, and even, get this, the singular nature of the mind. It focuses on how local processes of creating meaning interfere to create emergent global patterns of behaviour, and on how those global patterns in turn affect the local processes. No one can control these processes, and it says, for example, that whilst managers have considerable power to affect things, they don't control local interactions or their myriad repercussions. Obviously, this has got huge consequences for how strategy works, and the theory has a good deal to say about this. Complex responsive processes is not a new management method, and it's absolutely not a new slant on systems thinking. Because everything is in constant flux and seemingly fixed things are not as predictable as they look, it encourages us to be pragmatic, to see through the abstractions that pervade management thinking, to be doubting and curious, and to rely much more on our own local experience. 
So concluding, we aren't as independent as we think. Organisations are more like patterns than things. Managers aren't in as much control of them as they think. And system thinking isn't a panacea. Appreciating this and having a better understanding of what's really happening might affect how we participate in conversations. This might promote the emergence of more useful meaning and ultimately lead us to better outcomes. In much the same way that the deep understanding of nature at the atomic level has allowed humankind to engineer real world things better, understanding of complex responsive processes may help us manage things better. So I hope uh, I hope that was useful. Uh, I did say in the recording that I'd ask Eric about this thing about paradox and whether I'd explained it the right way. Um, so tell us all about the paradox thing, Eric. So uh, this notion of paradox is one of the one of the hallmarks of uh, complex responsive processes thinking, and it is very different from traditional management thinking. And so far as you will usually find in traditional management thinking, a linear kind of thinking about what is going to happen when there's chronology to things, there is one step after the other. And that is a mental framework that is given up in complex responsive processes in favor of ideas to do with a paradox. And one of the things that, or there's, there's different paradoxes that are being that are being described in complex responsive processes thinking. And one of the most important ones has to do with how we think about what an organization is. From complex adaptive systems thinking, the people who work in a complex responsive processes tradition, what they take from that is an analogy. And an analogy that you will find in complex adaptive system thinking is to do with computer simulations where you have uh, many agents on a screen and they are doing something, they're moving around a little bit. And what you will find is that these agents only have interaction with other agents that are in their closer vicinity. Now, the interesting thing is that without a plan or any kind of intention behind it, from these many local interactions of these agents on a screen, suddenly a global pattern emerges. So a global regularity occurs from the many local interactions where none of the local agents or none of the single agents has had in mind this global pattern in the first place. And now that global pattern, again, evolves a lot, it tends to, to have a life on its own in a way that it starts to have repercussions on how the agents at a local level are. Uh, behaving so the so what you're sa sorry what you're saying is that the the local uh, agents in this sort of idealized computer model of com complex adaptive systems continue to obey a simple set of rules whereas you're saying that complex responsive processes says something different is that right yes right sorry i interrupted you but carry on. i just wanted, no, I just wanted right. to make sure yeah. i'm absolutely sure i was clear yeah no that's right and th there is there is a difference but it begins with this notion of the paradox is that paradoxically, from many local interactions, there emerges a global pattern, a global regularity that nobody planned for. And that is a very different understanding as opposed to what you find in classical management theory, where, of course, there are people who think about what the global pattern should look like. They devise strategies that can be cascaded down to the organization, and then things will happen accordingly. That's at least the idea behind it. Now, 
what drove me onto the demand was the experience that that is not working in that way. So I was looking for a different way of making sense of what is actually going on. And when I came onto the demand, one of the things that I started to understand was you have to understand what an organization is very differently, namely as a global regularity that emerges from many local interactions. And then you asked a very good question, but then local agents on a computer screen are something different from human beings, isn't it? And of course, the answer is yes. So what is different? The main difference between human beings and local computer agents is that human beings have the capacity to act creatively and to spontaneously behave in a very different way than uh, they did uh, the second before. And that, though, that insight is not reflected in the idea of complex adaptive systems where you stay in this mechanistic metaphor, whereas in complex responsive processes thinking, you say the driving force behind the ongoing dynamic of what fuels the movement between the different agents slash human beings is their constant potential for reiterating what they have done before and at the same time, the potential for doing something very different. And that is a very important insight that you, you, you stick with the notion of there is many local interactions from which a global pattern emerges, which in complex responsive processes means um, an organization as a phenomenon emerges from the many local interactions of different people, but these different people are understood to interact with each other and they interact with each other with, uh, specific, with their human capacities. And one of the human capacities that they have is the ability for uh, interacting in, in a creative manner, if you will. And that is what it distinguishes them from computer agents. That makes absolute sense to me. And it's sort of, um, which is why I, I was interested in this in the first place, because it resonates with my experience. Uh, but my experience, I suppose, has been started with process modeling, that kind of thing, and developed into systems thinking. And I mentioned Peter Senger earlier. And, but Ralph would say that the understanding in complex responsive processes is quite different to that understanding that people who typically describe themselves as systems thinkers uh, would think. And I'm really interested in that about how that's different. Uh, there are a lot of systems thinking people who say, yeah, yeah, I, I get the complex adaptive system thing. We've, we've taken it into account and this is how we cope with it in our, in our model. But Ralph, I think, would say they haven't. And I'm interested in understanding what your thinking is on that. Yeah. So let's let's take a route via a metaphor that systems thinkers will typically employ once they come from a complex adaptive systems perspective. One of the metaphors that uh, is much more interesting to look at than local computer agents is phenomena in nature. And some of the phenomena that you will find in nature are, for example, um, uh, flocking birds, or a school of fish, which perform their beautiful movements. And uh, like when you think about starlings in an, in an evening sky, you will think, wow, that looks so beautiful. And that is also like a system, if you will. And uh, it, it is something that that looks like what is happening also in, in human interaction. That is the analogy that is drawn, or basically a metaphor that is drawn from uh, complex adaptive systems thinking, uh, that you can use these uh, flocking birds or fish in a way to think about what is going on in human 
interaction or in, in organizations. And that is then what in systems thinking you would think of as a biological system, for example. And that is a metaphor that is used very often when you look at, or when you talk to systemically trained people, when they talk about organizations. Now, in complex responsive processes thinking, there is this insight that humans are not like birds and not like fish to start with because they have capacity to react creatively and to react spontaneously. And there's many other things, but that's where it starts. That's one very important difference between the two perspectives. Presumably, though, complex responsive processes theory wouldn't say that we should abandon systems thinking because I guess in some senses it's a reasonable approximation to what's going on and good enough for some situations. Is that is that right? Or would you say, no, no, we don't want to we don't we don't want to think that way at all? Yeah, I think uh, what you what you could say is that systems thinking has its it can be applied but it can usually be applied in settings which are not characterized by human spontaneity, by human interaction. So as soon as it comes to understanding what is going on in nature, for example, thinking of what is going on in an anthill, it might make sense to think about it as a bounded system that exists there that we can look at and observe and make theory or, or, or theorize about. Now, the problem with doing that is when that arises when you think about uh, human organizations or human interaction more broadly is when we as humans look at other human beings, then we inevitably have an effective response to what is going on. So it is actually impossible for us to look at others in a totally objective way. And that makes it very difficult to sustain the notion of uh, thinking about systems when you think about um, human interaction or human organizations. So do you ever think in systems terms? No. Do you notice yourself thinking that way? No. No, no. I, I, I've abandoned that entirely. Yeah. That's really interesting. So the 64,000 uh, euro question is, what do you think about and how do you engage with people who are who have systems thinking locked within them and cannot escape from how do you how do you engage with them what do you do so i think you have to recognize first of all that uh, i i am working in a globally operating organization consulting firm and many people will not even recognize it those who are working here that they are actually working from a systems perspective but that's what we basically do. So when we come to make proposals to clients, we of course say that we know what we are doing and that we can predict the outcomes of uh, the interventions that we are facilitating after all. Why would we receive all the money that we are receiving if we wouldn't know what we were doing? So nobody asked the question of, wait a minute, is that actually what we are doing there? Like the question that I asked when I came onto the demand program. So I have to engage with people first of all, colleagues and peers, and not appear like a high-spirited cowboy who talks about things that uh, nobody knows about and that sound very crazy anyway. So I have to strike a very fine balance when I talk with people about what we are supposed to be doing when, for example, we put together a proposal. And on the other hand, of course, I have to recognize that clients are very much trained in thinking about 
predicting and controlling the outcomes of, for example, larger change initiatives, of culture transformation initiatives. And it, it wouldn't make much sense to go there and say, well, that's all bogus. And we all know that's not how it's going to pan out three years down the line. So let's skip all that and try something totally different. So that's not how it works. What I have to do is I have to be very careful and actually politically skillful in the way that I'm working. And normally what I'm doing is I will not let too much of my thinking go into proposal stages where we rather follow a very traditional approach. But where it will come through is once I start and work at the client side. So in those sessions, do, do you think you did anything special or did you just rock up as Eric and uh, talk with them? What, uh, what did you do? Yeah, I think that I think the the thing, and that is one of the main insights, has been one of the main insights for me in my thesis, is it is not just talking, but it is daring to explore a little bit longer than others normally would, the questions that are on people's minds. So instead of closing a conversation off prematurely and saying, oh yeah, this is going on, so you need to do this and that, I carry on asking questions and it may feel uncomfortable for people at some point, but then sometimes, and there's no guarantee for that, but sometimes there emerges a new insight when you just carry on exploring, not hoping that somebody is saying something that is in line with the tools that you are using, but that they are saying something that is of uh, that reveals something more that is sitting more deeply in them. And that then gives rise to further questions and can even be quite an engaging exercise for those in the room, even if you know it is a bunch of managers sitting there who just received feedback reports, most of which were not particularly promising for them. So it is quite a difficult situation anyway to talk about these matters. But to be able to facilitate the discussion in that forum and to see Everybody's seeing everyone is vulnerable, everyone has to deal with something, and we now have time and space to talk about some of these things, I think is, um, is good enough. Yeah, and you don't have to go into particularly sensitive territory, I guess. If you, you, if you just give folks a chance to talk about things that are, that are bothering them, they will. I guess it's just having the time and the patience. So Eric, you've got a different way of looking at things. And presumably not everybody in your organization has done the D-MAN program. How do you feel about how you, whether way you think about things fits with an organization that is dominated by systems thinking? It is difficult, of course. And as I said, it requires me to be political uh, in, in many ways. And by political, I mean that I cannot openly talk about what I'm actually doing with clients, for example, or where I have to pretend, at least for some uh, while in the beginning of an assignment, that I'm doing uh, what the contract requires. But then to find ways to uh, skillfully interact into a group situation which may likely lead to a deviation from the plan that we set out in the first place. And that then can lead to some very interesting discussions. It doesn't have to, but daring to ask questions that others wouldn't. So for example, 
when you sit with a group of managers and you run a training course and you present a kind of model or something, and then you look into the room and you will find that some people feel discomfort with that model. Now, the typical reaction would be to either gloss over it and carry on with it or to reiterate how meaningful the model is and that people just need a little time to adapt and then they will see the value it brings. What I would be doing is saying, it seems like some people are feeling some discomfort with this model. If you, if you want to, could, could we explore that discomfort for a moment? And that can invite people to then talk about things that otherwise would go unnoticed. And I think people recognize that. Yeah, of course, that's where the gold is, isn't it? Where, where people are feeling discomfort. Yeah, and at the same time, there is also the discomfort on the side of the, uh, the trainer, isn't it? Because if you ask that question, you will certainly not know what you will be getting back. In all likelihood, it will not be, oh, no, I just need a little time to understand your brilliant model, and then I'll take it you know, and, and, and use it in my daily work. That's not what you would be getting back. Instead, you can be getting back any, anything, and you need to be prepared to deal with that. And that is one of the things that I learned, I think, on the demand, to bear the uncertainty of not knowing what an organization, uh, what a conversation is going to, to yield and to, to stay in there and to help people reflect a little bit on what it is that is going on for them. And that is one of the key learnings from the demand, apart from the fact that you are doing work at doctoral level, which requires you to work in a very coherent manner and things. But one of the specificities of the demand is that you uh, meet there for four residentials a year with a group of other doctoral students and uh, all the supervisors engaged on the program, which are a couple. So you can easily end up in a group of 15 people, 15 or so people, and you sit in a circle of chairs. And as a student, you may be wondering what's going on there, but there is no agenda. You know, there's nothing planned, nothing pre-planned that one of the professors would pull out and then say, this is what we are going to talk about today. Here's a little lecture, and then you can break out into small groups and discuss that. Instead, you may be sitting there in silence for a while and feeling the internal discomfort of not knowing what's going to happen. And if you ask the question, what are we doing here? You may be getting back, well, what do you think we are doing here? <laughs> and then that can give rise to further discussions. Yeah. So the, the coming full circle back to the conference that I went to, that we, where we met in May, um, there was... Uh, on the Sunday, I think, there was a big meeting and there must have been 40, possibly even more people sitting around in a massive circle with Chris Moles in the centre. And we talked about a few things. And um, and then there was there were quite long periods of silence where people were reflecting or whatever, whatever, uh, whatever was going on. And I found that hugely refreshing that it's so, so seldom happens in the sort of the cut and thrust of organizational life. And just something like that happening, um, it feels important. So you went to the you went to the last conference. I mean, how how long ago did you finish your DMAN, and how many conferences have you been to, and and why do you keep going? Uh, I finished my DMAN in uh, at the end of two thousand eleven, and then I didn't go to the conference for a couple of years. 
but then pick, picked it up I think three or four years back and the reason is that um, I felt um, a kind of loneliness in terms of you know not not having those people around me that I that I would like to talk to uh, where what I, the way that I'm thinking is seen to be normal as opposed to being some sort of eccentric kind of you know whatever and that is what I was missing so then that's then where I began to, to come back regularly and um, ever since been enjoying it immensely it's, it's exactly the same reason that I went I do feel quite lonely sometimes because of the way I think think about things it's a way to um, recharge the batteries and get in touch with your roots as it were so Eric look this has been a fascinating 40 minutes and you've been very clear and very helpful and and really very interesting so um, on behalf of um, our listener uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, for for coming on the show and and talking about your stuff so that's fabulous thank you thanks for having me i enjoyed it a lot thanks <laughs>